Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Nate Finch, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. All right, we are back for another episode of Go Time. It is episode number 24. Uh, today's sponsors are Stack Impact and Code School. Today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. We are down one Brian Kettleston. He's a few thousand feet above us, making his way back home. Carlicia Campos is on the show today. Hi, everybody. And our special guest today is Nate Finch. How you doing, Nate? Doing good. So would you like to give everybody a little background about yourself? Uh, sure. So um, I've been doing development for uh, 16 years now, uh, since graduating from college, and um, about four and a half years ago, uh, right around Go 1.01 or so, something like that. I started looking at Go um, mainly as a way to not be pigeonholed as a Windows developer, because at that time I was a Windows developer, and I wanted to be more than that. Um, and I was looking at Go, and then I got into the community, and about six months later, I saw... Gustavo posting on Twitter that there was an opening for a Go developer at Canonical working on Juju. And um, I had interacted with um, Gustavo for a bit. And so we sort of knew each other and it eventually worked out. And I started working on Juju and I've been there for just about three and a half years. And I've done a bunch of Go stuff on the side and I am a big fan of Go. So you were uh, writing production Go code before most people knew about Go. Yeah, it's fun. I, I wanted to confirm that's Gustavo Neymar, right? He works at Juju? Correct. Yes, I, I skipped his last thing because I was not sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> I actually only know him because he's Brazilian, and I always think he works for Google, but he actually works for Juju. How do you say Juju anyway? Because I say Juju because that's how you say it in Portuguese, <laughs> which is so cute. How do you say it? Juju. The Juju. Hard, uh, yeah. Similar. Yeah. It's it's uh magic. It's a it's a word for, for magic because that's what we think Juju does. Magic stuff. Gummy bears in Brazil are called Jujubinha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I always think of gummy bear when I see Juju. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so Juju is um basically what an orchestration platform for kind of tying together different services. I haven't used it uh, myself, but it did look interesting. You guys have the charms, which are kind of the way applications are tied together. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's very similar to other orchestration platforms um, such as Kubernetes and, um, of course, now I'm blanking on, on the rest of the names. Um, Docker Swarm and... Yeah. Mesos and we are not so tied to Docker because we were we existed before Docker existed. Um, so you win, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, here you go. We win. Um, no, but uh, so we do support Docker. If you want to use Docker, that's fine. If you don't want to use Docker, that's also fine. 
Um, so what it does is it lets you um, make a very lightweight wrapper uh, around either you know, your Docker thing or your raw application, and then you can deploy it to the cloud or containers on your desktop or hardware um, in racks in your server room, and it makes it very, very easy to do very complicated stuff. Um, and last I checked, it was one of the, the biggest open source Go projects as possible. Someone's caught up by now, but um, it's well over 500,000 lines of code. Wow. And that's just stuff that we wrote. So it's, it's big. And we use MongoDB to store our data, which is okay. It, it stores our data, usually. Um, <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah. There's, there's a couple known issues with the way that Mongo works. And if you're careful, you can avoid them. So with kind of the history of um, Juju and the length of time it's been around, because I know um, Gustavo and stuff was working on it back in 2013, 2014. So we're talking, you know, early, early go days, pre 1.0. There has to be kind of like some, some lesson learns. How's things evolved? Like, we were talking about the other day on the show about Kubernetes and kind of like the etymology. Like, if you look through the code base, you can kind of see the evolution of people's understanding of the language. It started out very Java-ish, and then in the other areas, it's very Go-ish. Do you have similar things that you've experienced? Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, a lot of the early developers were um, more familiar with Python. And so there's a lot of Pythonisms, um, which is sort of worse than Java-isms because, you know, Java at least is strongly typed, whereas um, with Python, people expect to be able to just throw in whatever. Um, so there's a few spots where there's, like, empty interfaces and reflection. Most of that's been stripped out as we go along. I think one of the bigger lessons learned is we use um, Gustavo's GoCheck, uh, which is a testing framework built on top of GoTest. It adds um, test suites so that you can have code that runs before a whole suite of tests and then code that runs before each individual test, very um, J unit, X unit, those things do that too. And I think that's actually been kind of a problem because it means that we have a lot of code that runs that's invisible which means it's hard to know exactly why a test actually works because there's all this stuff to set up that you don't see. And then the unit tests take on a decent machine a good 17 or 18 minutes. And that's just like running Go test for all of Juju. That's a long time. So this is just your unit tests and not like integration tests and stuff. Correct. Our integration tests are even worse, but that's sort of understandable because our integration tests actually like bring up machines in the cloud and stuff. And those take like four hours, but that's, that's, you know, doing a lot of work over the network and machines booting and blah, blah. But unit tests, it's kind of inexcusable to have unit tests that take 17 or 18 minutes, huh. at least in this day and age. Um, so it, what it is, is we, we have a lot of full stack tests and run against like an actual Mongo database, which is great for like making it a real world scenario. 
but it's terrible when you make one small change and you want to run all the tests hard. So. Yeah, the hard part is just like, what should that number be? Yeah. Because it, like, with a 500,000 line code base, it's going to take a long time to, to do a good test suite. Yeah. But 18 minutes does feel probably on the longer side. So you initially came up, was this last episode or the one before, Carlicia, where we were talking about uh, Gorham? Or how do you pronounce that anyway? Gorham? Goram? Goram. Um, Goram. It's from Firefly. It's actually a swear. Like those Goram thieves. <laughs> That's awesome. Eric, I don't remember which episode it was. And I don't even remember talking about it. But I also don't remember a lot of things. So I don't know. You're always the one who's, she knows exactly which episode. Like we talked to which person and <laughs> so good at that stuff. It was episode 21, and the only reason I know that is because I listened to it last night. So. <laughs> so it was a couple more episodes ago than I thought it was. But yeah, she's so awesome with that. I'll mention it. It's like, we talked to somebody, and she's like, oh, yeah, it was episode such and such. Oh, thank you. I guess it doesn't work all the time. <laughs> if, if you ask me on Monday, I'll forget who we talked to last week. <laughs> so what was the motivation behind creating that? It's a really interesting project. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very simple. There's, there's one definite spot where I said, I have to make this. Um, and I was working with some JSON at work, and it gets spit out to the CLI in a big mess with no line returns or, or anything. And um, I was like, I, I need to make this look nicer. And I was working with someone else. And they said, oh, just do python-m json.tool and pipe it into that. and that worked and it you know made it all nicely indented and stuff and um i was like that's that's great i don't want to run python to do that i want to make my thing in go to do that because i don't know all the python libraries and stuff i'm vaguely familiar with some of them but i know like the go standards and libraries so i was like how can i make this work with go and so first i had to figure out how it works in python because i only had a vague idea um so in in Python, each script actually has a bit at, at, at the bottom that says, if I'm being run as main, then do this stuff that um, wraps the actual package in some smart logic to do some stuff. In, in the case of mm, json.tool, it's uh, make the JSON look nice, prettify. Um, and so I was like, OK, well, I can't go back and add that code to everything in the standard library but i bet you i could generate that code and i'm a big fan of generating code because i don't want to have to write the dumb code that's always mostly the same i want something to write it for me and that way i i can write the good stuff so i was like well okay i can do that and so i think it was lucky that that was my starting point it was a fairly complicated thing of pipe in some JSON to a specific function to verify it. So that was a difficult use case that I think made it much easier to do everything else that Gorm can do. So that's, that's the story. And so I started poking at um, Go types, um, just the standard library package that reads code and understands what types are in there. And so luckily, 
much of Go code has a lot of conventions that we can use to understand what type of action this function is going to take. So like readers and writers and returning n for the length and, and returning errors and stuff. And so there's all these conventions that make it very easy to just generate some code because you pretty much know what each thing is going to expect. And so I just started poking at that for, I don't know, it was like a week or so and got uh, some basic things working. And then I've been adding a few new features since then. I just thought it was really cool because I throw together like little tiny Go programs to do stuff like that. Like, oh, let me you know, reformat the JSON and stuff like that. So it was really cool to see that because then I can actually throw that in my bash scripts without having to pass around these little binaries. Yep. Um, uh, one thing that I noticed that you mentioned in the last show was that it works with the standard library. It actually works with anything in your Go path. So if you have some third party thing, it'll still work. Oh, cool. So anything that's in the Go path of whatever machine it's being run on. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. So Bill Kennedy was asking us too, like what your experience with working on large code bases is with it being that large and kind of not the norm. It's funny. The um, There's a proposal for Go 1.8 about aliases um, that is supposed to be for support for bigger projects. And that kind of a thing actually could be pretty useful for us. So we have a lot of lines of code, but also we have a lot of different repos and multiple different applications building off those. And so any major modification to an API can cause lots of problems. You have to have like four different projects all change at the exact same time. And so aliases, at least one time that I can think of would have been a big help. But I'm also sort of on the fence for supporting aliases because they do make it difficult to know for sure that these two things are the same because you, you can have types that look like they're different and they're actually not. And that's not that great. So I wonder, like, uh, can either one of you explain where an alias is so we can frame this issue a little better for people who don't know? I, I have an idea, but I couldn't explain it well. And after we explain what it is, my question for you, Nate, is do you think it could be overused? I mean, it seems that it was already implemented, right? I don't think, I don't even know if there is any going back. Does anybody know? Uh, yeah, I've been following that. Um, so it has been implemented, but there's still time to roll it back if it's decided that we should. And so what aliases are is you can put a definition in your package that is, um, for example, type foo equals greater than some other packages type. So the equals greater than looks like a right-facing big arrow. It's like the Ruby hash rocket. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what that says is references to this type in this package are the exact same thing as references to that thing in that package. So a function that takes one takes either. And more complicated constructions like a function that takes a function that takes that thing works with either one. And it's that second order function of a function that is where you actually need it. Because 
for types, you, you, you could use interfaces directly. So you can pass a strings.string reader into, into something that needs an io.reader. However, if you have a function that takes a string reader and something else that wants to take a function that takes a function of io.reader, that won't work. It's a little hard to explain without text. Audio de like definitions of things, it's difficult. Right. But I guess the, the basic uh, explanation of it is it's it's almost like a symlink, mm -hmm. right? Where you're referencing um, one type from another package in your current package. So say you took one big monolithic repo and you needed to split it up. Well, you don't want to break all the projects that may be referencing that package. So you may kind of create an alias so that the type still exists in the original package, but it basically refers to it in its new uh, location. I didn't realize that it worked the other way. So you said it basically the indirect works both ways, Nate, where I could pass in if I took the type from the original package or I took the type from the new package, I could use either type passed in. I'm pretty sure. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, I think that's sort of needed to make sure that you have full compatibility, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, and I, I think that, and uh, Bill Kennedy is kind of chatting here too. He said, you know, that this, he pointed out the fact that this is supposed to be a temporary stopgap. Like it's not supposed to be a feature that people heavily use. It's supposed to allow people to put that alias in to not break CI for, you know, 20 uh, projects that all depend on this one. Yeah. It that's what they say, but we all know that no hacks are ever temporary, right? Like they will stick around for for years, uh, which is one of my concerns about this. Yeah, I, I think that it has a legitimate use, but I think that people are also concerned with, you know, Go has done a very good job at removing the, the foot guns, you know? Right. And th this seems like one, and I think that's why people are kind of really really kind of heated the, the debate. It's really kind of polarized. You know, there's the people who really need it for legitimate purposes. And then there's everybody else. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, people are going to really overuse this. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know, because one of the angles of the conversation was this is adding a level of interaction that's going to make reading code confusing. And uh, the other side is saying, well, but, you know, it's very useful. And guess what? We have GoTo as well, which is not supposed to be used all the time, but we do have it and we use it very specific and very sparingly. And so Nate has this huge code base that he works with and it is useful for him. And my, what I'm wondering is if you, Nate, see the potential for this being totally overused. Um, well, so I, I think it's very valid to say that there are things in the language now which we say don't do that. And except for very specific cases, like using panics, like you could use them exactly like exceptions, but then everyone will tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> um, I do agree that as a community, we, we seem to be pr pretty good at following conventions that we all pretty much agree on. Um, like, there's actually nothing that forces anyone to go format their code, and yet everyone does. I think this could be a similar thing. I think it could be abused. 
I am hoping that people won't. For most big bases like Juju, we review every line of code. And so if someone was doing wacky stuff with this, we'd be like, no, don't do that. But there, there are definitely times where it is very useful to be able to break up packages, move things around, and not have to have a like 10,000 line diff, which I've had to do. It was not fun. Um, and in that exact thing, aliases would have helped a lot. So, I don't know. I, I think it's probably gone far enough that they're not going to take it out at, at this point. And I think we have to be mindful of the way that's used. Yeah. And I think uh, now is probably a good time for a sponsor break. So our first sponsor uh, today is Stack Impact. And Stack Impact is all about profiling and monitoring for Go. It helps you laser focus on the performance of your Go applications. It gives you a, a historical deep dive of performance visibility into your Go execution. So you can kind of discover and resolve any bottlenecks. A line of code precision. Technically, Stack Impact makes Go built-in profiling capabilities usable by offering it in a production environment and giving you kind of a graphical interface to drill down uh, through the stack and figure out where your performance bottlenecks are, both on CPU and memory allocations, as well as channel network and lock weighting. So if you want to see kind of where your mutexes are hanging, it's a good way to drill in. In the show notes, we're going to have a link out to a few blog posts with more details so you can uh, get a better feel for it. They offer they also offer a great demo account if you want to go to their website at stackimpact.com. The stackimpact.com login is demo at stackimpact.com and the password is demo demo. So go ahead and log in there. Check out the dashboard. They off, also offer like nice uh, anomaly based events. They can basically go into a Slack channel, JSON webhooks, or email you based on anomalies where some of your CPU usage or memory changes into an odd area. Definitely go ahead and check out the demo. Um, the, if you're on the Gopher Slack, there's a Stack Impact channel uh, where you can report any issues or get support or talk to other users. If you need to focus on performance for your Go application, we recommend you check out Stack Impact. Head over to stackimpact.com slash go time. Yeah, that looked pretty impressive. I was checking that out. That looked really cool. Yeah, I was digging around on there too. Like, um, th these are definitely things that when you're running the profiling tools, you get this information, but you usually don't have it available to you once you kind of roll your app out into production. So it's really cool kind of digging around the web interface and kind of seeing what was available. Yeah, and that's sort of where it really counts, right? When, it, when things are in production is when you really want to Doing. Yeah, you can only simulate so much in your, your test and, and CI environment. Yep. So, so ha, going back to uh, talking about how we are using Go and the most uh, useful way of using the features that we already have, at least that's, that's how it was playing in my mind. I know Nate wants to talk about error handling and how the way Go does it is different and maybe even better than in other languages. So I would love to go there. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so it's funny. Um, when Go 1.0 was announced, um, was actually the first time that I had heard of Go. And at the time, I was working in C Sharp for the most part with some Java and Python. And um, I was like, oh, it's a language from Google. I should go look and see what it's like. And 
the very first thing that I noticed was no exceptions. I was like, well, that's terrible. I'm not going to use that. <laughs> and later they, they, they announced 1.0, uh, 1.01 or something like that um, about six months later. And I was like, well, let me look at it again. And the rest is history. So exceptions are hard, 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 hard. So my last job was another big code base was I think 750,000 lines of C sharp. And I remember one instance where I was modifying some code. And I was like, oh, this, this code can fail. I'll have it throw an exception. And during a code review, someone was like, you can't have that throw an exception. That's way deep in the stack. We have no idea who will catch that. And that, that was the first time I was like, wow, exceptions aren't that great. Um, they're, they're basically a go-to, except you don't know where you're going to. You can figure it out sometimes, but it's very hard to, to know who is going to catch this error. And you have to clean everything up. And if you're looking at a function, you have no idea what can fail. Any function that you call could fail. And what's, what's worse is that it might not fail now, but in six months, someone might modify it to fail. And that's scary. And I remember one of the, the first Go programs that I wrote was just like downloading a bunch of pictures off some website. And everything that could fail returned an error. And I was like, it was this epiphany of, oh my God, I know what can fail. I can deal with all this. And I know exactly what my program's going to do. I think dealing with errors is um, where Go really got it right because the the multiple returns means it's very easy to just say okay this thing returns an an error but also some actual useful data and yes you have to do if error not equal nil blah but that's good because that means you're saying i know this can fail i'm going to do something and people always talk about oh it makes my happy path look all messy and i'm like this is programming there is no happy path Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, especially when you write network software, right? Like the, the amount of things that can go wrong and it's just anybody who's kind of supported applications and in, in prod is aware of stuff like that. Like the odd things that start happening to every application when different resources start hitting their level of saturation, when the out of memory killer starts going or when you run out of disk space and you know, the network drops or somebody decides to to take down a link and bring it back up or assign a new IP address to it. Like random stuff happens on the machine. They're, like you said, there's no happy path. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I find is that in, in Go, I'm a lot more aware of where things can fail. And so instead of just programming for when things work and then when things break, everything dies. Um, Things don't always work exactly the way I expect them to, and you have to deal with that. And things like the network being terminated is not terribly exceptional. It happens all the time. Um, so what do you do? And it's like there's no happy path. There's also no bad path. There's just paths. It's just forks. Like, is this user's name Bill or is it Bob? It's not happy or sad. They're just different, and you do different things. 
That's a very good point. Um, I remember when I started looking at Go open source projects, especially the more the the bigger ones like Influx Data and InfluxDB and Docker, etc. I got really intimidated by how how long the files were. I was just thinking, wow, it must take a lot of mental energy to hold everything that's in this file in your head. I mean, especially coming from Ruby and you know, people say you don't make a file longer than I think it's a hundred lines. And here I was looking at Go files; they were just super, super long. Now, after I learned a little bit, I noticed that a lot of it is error. And then my first reaction was like, I don't want to be looking at error handling. I want to look at the code. I want to look at the happy path because that was my my frame of reference. That's how I was. I used to think. So, which is to say, Go has a very different um, mm, prerogative, I want to say, <laughs> a very different approach. And now that I'm used to it, I really find it very refreshing that everything is there, is explicit, and it's right there. So I don't have to go to other places. I don't have to follow that chain of exception throwing all over the place. Everything is right there. Now I find it it's the opposite for me. I love it. Um, I just find it super simple. It's before, whereas before I used to look at a big file and think I have to hold it all in my head. Now I look at a big, a long Go file and I think everything is here. It's so much easier for me to hold this in my head because everything is right here. It's not, I don't, I'm not, it's not a long file that it's that content and I have to go all over the place to look at where exceptions are being thrown. Everything is right there. It's explicit. So it makes it a lot easier. You know, the the one thing that I like about it is if you if you use idiomatic Go, then your your happy path, so to speak, typically is at the first indentation level. So you can kind of if you're just trying to get an idea for what a function does, you can kind of just scan that level. And most of your your you know edge cases and when things return in error are typically indented in. That's typically where you find your error handling. So it's easy to kind of scan past it when you're just trying to get a rough idea. But you can like you said, you can focus more on it when it matters, when you're really trying to, oh, well, why would this go wrong? I should look to make sure it's handling these scenarios I'm expecting it to. The hardest part is not knowing. It's it's the unknown unknowns, you know? And I think that's why, like, the whole crash-only software paradigm has kind of become more popular, especially with distributed computing and, and containers and stuff. And kind of going back to Nate's point about people overusing panic, I wonder if it's it's that kind of crash only um, methodology that's that's having people do use panic more. I definitely think uh, that there are a large number of people that think that once you get into a bad state, that you no longer know what's going to happen, and so you should just bail out. That's fine. Um, but one of the ways you can avoid getting into a bad state is by understanding what can fail and how things are able to fail. Um, and even with Go, like returning an error is sort of like failing. So you're saying, I couldn't do it. Something went wrong. Make no assumptions about what I was supposed to do. Um, oftentimes, that will just bubble all the way back up to wherever the start of your action was. And in Juju, we actually have uh, things we call 
workers that are threads which will get restarted um, if they air out. And it's very similar to crash-only software, just per go routine. But I don't think you need panics to do that. Panic is um, taking down like the whole application. And I think applications these days are complicated enough that one small piece failing is not a need to bring down the entire thing, usually. Oh, agreed. I mean, you should you should allow the highest level possible to make that decision, right? Like you had some sort of it's RPC service and there was some kind of network issue through jitter, like reordered packets and it lost its state or something like that. Like you wouldn't crash the whole program. You would come back up a level and that would be like, let's let's close this connection and let it reopen because we don't tip, we don't really know what state the connection is in whether it's sending kind of like a header packet or the body and we can't figure this out to reset it. Let's just close the connection and reopen one. You don't have to crash the whole program because of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, Bill Kennedy actually asked um, too. speaking of kind of error handling, like what your views were on um, wrapping of errors, because there's kind of a lot of polarization there too, where people think you should, so you can get more context and get stack information. And then there's also the other side of it when you're wanting to handle errors, trying to do error comparisons. When you wrap errors, you end up leaving yourself needing to compare strings or regular expressions against them instead of um, comparing actual types. Mm -hmm. Well, so we actually use a wrapper in Juju that we wrote a couple years ago. So in the beginning, we didn't use a wrapper, and that does kind of make things rough because it you don't use a wrapper then you do have to just compare strings if you're using the like format that rf and then just adding on more string to the string that you have um i like dave's package um github.com slash package slash errors so the, the nice thing about his is that he gets a stack trace when you make the new error we can still get the error that was the original error. And so you can still like check and see if it's in io.eof without having to look at the string. You can see if it matches some interface. And Juju's package also lets you do that. So all these these packages work basically the same. And there's a lot out there. We we looked at a bunch and I'm sure more have been written. And so basically they all just store the original error and give you back a proper struct that goes around it. The problem with Juju's is that you have to wrap it at every return because instead of getting a, a stack trace per se, it marks where it gets wrapped on the return path up. Um, the idea was that sometimes you pass errors over channels, like the stack trace per se may not be how you eventually get a hold of the error. In theory, it was a good idea. In practice, it means that Everywhere you return error, you have to do a uh, wrapping, which um, is kind of a burden, mostly for when things return multiple values. You can't tail call, like return a function. Um, you have to assign the values to variables and then wrap the error and then return both. And that's kind of a pain. The difference with Dave's is that he actually grabs the stack trace the first time. So in theory, you don't actually have to wrap it when you return it past that first time. So 
I think they're kind of good. And I think they're kind of not as useful as people think. So in Juju, a lot of the time, I can just search for the string and find the spot where, where it's made and figure out what's going on. I don't always need the whole stack trace. In fact, it's fairly rare that I need the whole stack trace. So Yeah, I typically only want the stack trace if I don't know how to continue. If I know how to recover from the error, I don't really care about the stack trace. But when I'm I'm actually taking down the application because I don't know how to recover from the state. That's typically where I want a full stack trace. Yeah. And I guess I just haven't seen as much use out of the stack trace as I would like. And so it seems like a lot of work, not really a lot of work, but more work for questionable benefit. So I'm still leaning towards saying it's a good idea, but it's, it's not as, as strong as as I would like. I'm not exactly sure how to make that better case so that it's a stronger yes, you absolutely should do that. Okay. So I think it's about time for our second sponsor break. And then I want to get into kind of some projects and news, um, especially with the 1.8 freeze going on. Yeah. So our next sponsor is Code School. So our friends at Code School just launched a new course for those who are just getting started with Go. It's called On Track with Golang and has five levels. Level one is completely free, so you can easily take your first step into learning Go. Uh, all you have to do is go over to codeschool.com slash go, click on the, the giant button that says start course for free, create an account and get started. Level one has two videos and eight challenges. And the cool thing is, is that all of this is done uh, through your web browser. So you don't have to set up your machine with Go and GoPath, which GoPath is being fixed uh, soon. Uh, once you made it past level one, you can look forward to the final level, which is level five, where you'll be working with interface types, uh, creating packages, and writing concurrent code with Go routines. And these are some of the primary reasons people are coming to Go. Uh, once again, level one is completely free. Uh, code School wants to make it super easy to take your first step into learning Go. Uh, and this course is a, a great first step. So head over to codeschool.com slash go to get started. Thanks again, Code School, for this awesome course and sponsoring the show. So next up, projects and news. So we have the 1.8 freeze. So that just happened and we're going to be frozen for, I think it's three months, right? Yeah, I think so. So I want to talk about some of the stuff that's coming in there. Um, we talked about one of them, which is the aliases, but there's some other stuff coming in, like they're, they're leveraging um, the context package a lot more. So one of the cool things I was interested in is the database SQL package will have cancelable queries now. Yeah, I was looking at too, and they've done a bunch of stuff with names and parameters and, and stuff uh, that they're really buffing it up a bunch because there's a little bare bones before and it's nice to have it be able to do a lot more things it's like that's you know half of what most applications do is talk to a database yeah that's true i don't i don't know how much love i've seen uh in the database sql package since you know early 1.0 release it may just be because i haven't been looking for it but I, I, yeah, I don't think a lot of more functionality has been added to it, to my knowledge. But one of the other cool things is the HTTP package. The server will actually have Graceful shut down by itself now, which is going to save me a lot of boilerplate code when I build HTTP APIs. <laughs> yeah, that is very cool. And then uh, they're going to be doing the reverse proxy. We'll have HTTP2 support. And I, Nate, so I hadn't seen this, but you had mentioned something about dynamic plugin. That's coming in 1.8. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it is. Okay, good. So they've been working on this for, for a long time, being able to um, compile code as 
a plugin that can be loaded by other Go code. Um, and the other main application loads it using, there's a new um, plugin package in the standard lib on tip. And so it basically works like plugins where you can load new data, um, you can call functions and stuff. It's uh, very interesting. So this is basically loading it as a dynamic library, like a, a DLL or an SO file yes. for other languages where you're dialing in. So I'm, I'm guessing, so how does that work for dynamically linking against it? Do you need to know, have the plugin at compile time? Like you would for, like you'd need the header files for C if you were going to dynamically link against something? Or is this just completely generic because the information is available in the binary? It's completely generic. Um, which means you lose a bit of type safety going through it. Um, I'm looking at the package now to remind myself, but um, basically you can look up um, names of types and functions and they get returned as an empty interface and then you can cast them and call them. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, I know there's been a few use cases where people have really wanted plugins. Um, and like uh, Kubernetes is a good example too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of plugins. Um, in fact, I wrote a package to work with plugins called Pi that will be at least partially obviated by this, which is fine. So I think plugins are super valuable. Like that's that's half of why Kubernetes is so popular is that you can swap things in and out as much as you want. And um, this will make it even better because then you can use real Go that you just drop in the directory and stuff. So. Yeah, it's, I think it's really cool from the, the perspective that there's a lot of cool tools um, where we want them to support uh, many different uh, interfaces to other applications and architectures. But, but the core package starts to become very bloated with knowledge of all these individual versions of the same system, whatever that may be, databases or, or things like that. So to be able to move it out into a plugin approach is really cool. Um, and like a good example of this, and I'm going to give away my free software Friday early, but uh, CNI, the container networking interface, like you can basically just tell it, like this is the plugin I want to use for my networking. And there's just kind of like a known interface between them. So having stuff like this is really cool because then you can start separating that logic from the core package. So there can be kind of individual packages that are more, more focused. And as long as they expose the correct methods, so I'm not sure, was that all the, the goodies coming in 1.8? Does anybody know of any other ones that are coming in? Um, the GC improvements, so now it's down to maximum 100 microseconds, not milliseconds, micro. Yeah, which is awesome. And there's a new proposal. Um, this isn't going to be for 1.8, but I think it's future work where they're trying to get it down to um, under 50 microseconds for the Stop the World pauses. Yeah. Um. There's a caveat right now that individual routines may stop for longer than that. There's some, I don't know if it's a bug or just the way things work. So it's just stop the world is that short, but they're working on making it better and better, which I think is just fantastic because that's that's what half the world says when they look at Echo is that, oh, it's got a GC. Well, can't use that. Well, maybe you can now. See. What what I love about Go is that I get a, a choice, right? Like there, yes, there is a GC, but I mean, I can manage my own memory if I want to, if if, it, if it's important to me and I want to have full control over it. 
I can manage it. You know, I can create my own bite slices and and pointers and stuff and just hang on to them and reuse them and create a pool, right? Right. So basically creating your own slabs. It's not like it's not like a Python or Ruby where like you have no option. You can have GC or you can have GC, right? Right. So and it's it's cool because you can write it one way first. And for the most for most people coming to a compiled language, it's going to be fast enough already. Like the, the number of times you're going to drill down to allocation isn't as common as you'd like it to be, right? Yep. Like we all want to think like every piece of code we write, like we we start breaking out pprof and looking at all the allocations and stuff, but that that's not typically the case. Usually you wait to see what performance bottlenecks you have and focus in on those areas and areas that are are very hot in the in the execution path where the allocations matter those areas you might start drilling into the number of allocations and start messing with that but it's not like you're going to go through your whole app and do that if you do then i want to work on your team because (laughs) usually you're you're so racing to deliver features you know (laughs) right exactly so as far as Go 1.8. I just wanted to mention that uh, there is a really great blog post listing in detail what's going to be in 1.8, and it was Tyler Christ Tyler Christensen. Uh, we will list we'll place the link on the show notes and on Slack. Oh, uh, Tyler Christensen, yeah. Yeah, there are a bunch of nifty little things. Cool. So interesting project. I, so we mentioned a few shows ago the Vols vulnerability scanner that was written in Go, and I was looking at it again recently, and I noticed that there, it actually uses a library called uh, Go CUI, which is actually really cool because you can build kind of command line user interfaces in Go, and it has kind of the concept of splits and windows and and um, modal pop-ups and stuff. So I haven't built anything with it, but seeing it really makes me want to. Nice, yeah, I used a different one for a small project. I can't remember now what the name it was, but um, very similar to I guess it's slightly uh, lower level. This one's like you can like just make a window and put stuff in it. One that I was using was more like your screen was a grid and you could put stuff in, in the grid. But this looks really cool. Definitely want to try that one out. See, I, I love graphical stuff, but I don't I don't know why, but I'm a command line junkie. It's like even like my development machine, I don't, I have a Mac and I do like the the podcast and stuff from that and email and chat and stuff, but I primarily develop off a Linux box and I run like the i3 window manager. Like that's it. I I don't need any of the fluff. Like just give me some terminal windows and I'm good. Yeah. Well, so I, I did 13 years of Windows development. So I still at times want things I can poke at with a mouse, but I also love the terminals. This is sort of a nice, like, put those both together and you have a lightweight, windowy thing here. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm waiting to have some time to actually build something with it. <laughs> so another cool project I found, it, they have a command line version for it too, but it, mainly for Vim and NeoVim is a fuzzy file finder that's written in Go. And there's been like a number of these written over the years for editors, but I thought that that was really cool. I like anything that gets rewritten in Go. Like, oh, here's, you know, here's a cool grepping tool. I'm going to write one in Go. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a um, great first project is to take a small tool that you like in a different language and 
do it in Go. Because then, like, a lot of time working on a project is like, what do I want it to do? And what's nice about um, just copying something else is that you already know what it does. You have to just make it do that. I think that's a really nice way to learn the language. Because you spend your time uh, learning the language rather than trying to learn the domain and the language at the same time. You're already kind of familiar with the domain. Yeah. How about you, Carlicia? Anything you've come across this week? Yes, uh, but actually not much. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, Dave Cheney's talk with a disclaimer that it was the only talk from .go that I, I have watched. So I'm sure there are a ton <laughs> of other great talks. And this one I watched and loved it. Um, it's basically, he talks about the uh, functions as first-class citizens in Go. And I loved it that he didn't take for granted that everybody knows how to use functions as, uh, as arguments, basically. Am I saying this right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny that he said, he talks to people when people say, well, I know how to use it, but I don't use it because I'm concerned that other people won't understand. And that is definitely true for me. I haven't used it yet, but he walks through examples of how to use it. And I thought it was such a great thing to have that resource there to learn it. And in the talk, he also goes into the actor concurrency pattern. I didn't really get how the two fit together, but I just, I also loved it because, oh, great. There is a nice example of how to use that pattern. And um, in the example that he gave, I think the purpose for that example was to show the first Go proverb. And for people who don't know, there, there is such a thing as a list of Go proverbs, which is the first one is don't communicate by sharing memory, share memory by communicating. And for people who are new to this uh, statically typed language with pointers in memory allocation and all of that thing, those things, this might sound so cryptic. So Dave's talk walks through an example that gets the idea across. It is a bit advanced, but if you're ready for that, I highly recommend it. And he also mentioned a talk by Brian Burham from uh, this year's Golang UK conference. It's called An Actor Model in Go, which I haven't seen yet, but it will go deeper into what an actor model will do. Yeah, there's a talk by Rob Pike from one of the Gopher Fests um, where he talks about the Go Proverbs. So I'll, I'll find that video and link that in the show notes too. Yeah, good point. So an interesting thing about the functions as first-class citizens, I have not seen that talk, but speaking of 1.8 changes, um, the sort logic, um, right now you have to have kind of like an interface on your type that you want to sort. Um, which has kind of been a pain, but uh, in one eight, you'll now be able to use a comparator. So you'll be able to just pass in a, a function to do the comparison and return basically which side is is greater. So there's a use case right there for the first class functions. Yeah, there we go. That's a that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, you know, because that that's how I approach things. I accumulate a bunch of tools, and every time I have a problem, I reference to those tools and say. Can I use one of these to solve this problem? But it's, it's helpful when people serve to you, like, here's a use case. So you have that in mind. Good one. Yeah, I, I am actually working with um, some 
code that uses first class functions. So as a way to do validation of user data. So you've got a function that's got all this logic for getting the data. Then you just pass it in a validation function, and then it can run that to make sure that the data is valid. I was working on that while I watched Dave's video. I was like, oh, well, yes, that's exactly, exactly what we're doing. Yeah, I haven't actually seen that video. I need to put that on my list. Actually, all the .go videos I need to put on my list to watch. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, so what else do we have on our list before we move on to Free Software Friday? Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, Peter Burgon emailed the mailing list. I forgot which one. And they have the draft spec for package management ready, and they are calling for comments. They are uh, soliciting comments either on Gopher Slack, the vendor's channel, or on the mailing list. And they started uh, implementing a, a little prototype too. So that that's definitely moving along. Yeah, I looked at that, and honestly, it's so long and so detailed. I need like a TLDR version so that I can have some idea of what the overall meaning is. But it's seven pages long. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know that I can get all that. Yeah, maybe the prototype they're starting to implement will be helpful in that regard. Sometimes it's easier to look at code. Yeah. All right. Ready for Free Software Friday? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I more? have one more thing. More? Last thing. What is it? GoBridge has a community newsletter called GoPulse. And oh, yes. Yes. It's uh, Amy jumped in and took this on, and she did a fantastic job with the first issue. And we have sections for uh, different things that people can suggest. And every month, we, there is a, an editor. So if you feel so inclined, Raise your hand and volunteer and suggest things. The, the newsletter came out really, really good. The one thing I liked was the um, the gopher mic section where you kind of hand it over to, to somebody. Yeah, she made it very inclusive. It was awesome. And this is monthly? Yes. Awesome. So before we move on, where should people go to sign up for that if they are not already signed up? Uh, it's basically the GoBridge. Uh, blog. And uh, I want to correct myself. Her name is Amy Chan. We need to remember to say people's last name. So Amy Chan, thank you. You did an amazing job. And people can sign up at the GoBridge blog post, uh, blog. <laughs> and that's it. Awesome. So free software Friday. So every, well, today's Thursday, but we do it for Friday. So we like to give shout outs to people or projects that are making our lives easier. So Carlicia, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. What do you have this week? Yes. I'm going to mention a project that was uh, I actually solicited on the channel, on the GoTime channel, because I didn't have one, but I definitely wanted to give a shout out to somebody. And now I didn't write his name here. I forgot the person who uh, mentioned it. it. The package is called Kinetic. And it's an easier way to access kinetic shards and, and for pulling and for doing other things. So if you're using AWS. Oh, interesting. That's something you should check out. Yeah. The official description says, high-performance AWS Kinesis clients for Go. Nice. Uh, so my shout-out is to Hugo. 
um, which was uh, originally written um, by Steve Francia. Um, it is the static website generator um, that I think most people know about, but that's um, what I use to make my blog. Um, you know, lots of people do, and there's been a ton of work on it. Lately, uh, a lot of it's been being done by Bjorn somebody. Sorry, uh, I don't have his name in front of me, but um, it's gotten even, even faster, and it's really a great way to build a website that looks nice and is easy to update and um, very usable. Yeah, Hugo is really awesome. It's actually what um, the GopherCon and Gopher Academy sites are all running. So, and even if you're not familiar with Hugo itself, you're probably familiar with some of the projects that came out of it. Um, Cobra and Viper were both um, by SPF 13, which is Steve Francia. They're both out of Hugo. They were kind of abstracted lessons learned along the way. So super cool project. So mine today is actually called CNI, the Container Networking Interface. And I want to give a shout out to everybody who is involved in that project because it's, it's really cool for Kubernetes for um, networking logic. It allows you to kind of inject your own executable into the flow to um, allocate an IP address or, or set up routes when containers are spawned up on things, which it just makes kind of a complex problem much easier. You don't have to go in hacking Kubernetes or, or Docker or Rocket. They all leverage CNI themselves too. So, and with that, we are out of time, unfortunately. Can I make one, two, two quick things? You certainly can. So many things. <laughs> Huge shout out, shout out to everybody in Brazil who are there for GopherCon Brazil. Yes. I, I already see people having a great time. The conference starts tomorrow, so it's tomorrow and Saturday. And Eric is giving a great talk about Kubernetes. Eric, you didn't mention that, so I have to. Um, the talk is entitled, I'm trying to find the, talk, the name of the talk here. Please Called help me. Kubernetes as seen, as on, seen on TV. TV. Yes. So check it out. It's going to be at KubeCon November 8 and 9, but Eric's talk is on November 9. So speaking of which, because of that, we won't have a show next week. Um, I think I'm, I'm traveling for that. Brian's traveling. I think he's in Amsterdam next week. So I think everybody's traveling. So we will be skipping next week's show unless we can find uh, time to squeeze one in, not live in off time. But let's assume there's no show next week. So with that, uh, I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. Huge shout out to our sponsors, both to Stack Impact and Code School. Um, thank you to all of our live listeners and future listeners. Definitely uh, forward this to your friends. We are GoTime FM on Twitter. We have a GoTime FM channel on the Gopher Slack. If you are not subscribed already, go to GoTime.fm, our website, or our email. And then I guess if you want to be on the show or you have ideas for guests or topics for the show, uh, hit us up on github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And with that, everybody, goodbye. Thank you, Nathan. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>